bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. Happy Saturday. Happy end of the week. Happy penultimate episode of 2018. Yes. Penultimate for the season. Yes. Erica, have we gotten renewed? You got what? Have we gotten renewed Uh, for our third season? Yay. Well, Jonathan Kay wouldn't like that, I'm sure. (laughs) Honestly, like... The fact that we even got on Jonathan Carey's radar and he didn't like us was a personal triumph. Kind of pride. It was a pers- It was a triumph for us. Yeah, I think that we hit the right note. If he hates us, <laughs> like I don't, I don't care. <laughs> I think you made a really good point uh, in our group chat that he only picked up on it what, the day the pod came out. Yeah, which is like very suspect. Yes. Like, He's definitely either listening or like I following or creeping or something. He's shit. creeping. Hey, John. Yeah. <laughs> we mentioned you. Look yeah. at us giving you shine. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, any any notable things from the week, fam? I was okay. So. No, I I was gonna tell this story and then I was like, uh, nobody cares. <laughs> You're gonna all. have to cut out all that dead air. I know. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I know, but I can actually. The funny thing is, I can actually see the dead air really easily. Oh yeah. So I'm like, okay, a cut. Uh, do you have any, anything? Fun know, to make pickled eggs. So it's been a week. Oh, new hobbies and whatnot. Great. How's I mean, improv? I mean, other other things, but the pickled eggs delicious um pickled improv, eggs are great i love pickled eggs yeah. so much uh improv's good yeah it's fun yeah yeah are you yes ending in all parts of your life or just at improv you know it's a process i i hope to get there one day yeah what do you what do you think on the most valuable the part <laughs> of his um i mean yeah definitely the active listening and the collaborative aspect um you can't overthink things you can't go in thinking you are going to be funny because you have to play off other people and you don't know what anyone is going to do. Um, so, you know, like that's, I don't know, that's a lot, right? Yeah, like, yeah, like it it's is. actually very intense. It's really fun though. And everyone in the class is just lovely. Um, but it feels like, um, yeah, like, you know, you're out there without a net and you're, you can't control the situation and you shouldn't try. And the more you try, the worse, like it's not going to be funny. So you're just going to have to surrender to it. So what you're saying is that it's teaching you to be vulnerable. It's what? (laughs) Teaching you to be vulnerable. Uh, Yeah. I feel like I'm pretty, pretty vulnerable, but like how to do it better, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, nothing really exciting. Oh, whatever. You were in New Orleans. Yes. I was in New Orleans for work. Um, I, I don't know. There was good food. I slept a lot somehow. I don't know. It's good. It's right. Because you already told the story. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah, like this weird lady kidnapped, didn't kidnap me, but like kidnapped me and took me with her on this like weird adventure and paid for everything. And it was great. Um, and we were talking about how Americans do that and how Americans are actually 
um, what did you say to me? Well, they're friendlier than they're, Canadians. They it's are. It's a myth that Canadians are friendly. Canadians are polite. Yeah, yeah which is not. different from friendly. Because a Canadian won't meet you and say, hey, let's go here, there, and everywhere, yeah. and then pay for it, and then drop you off at your hotel, which apparently is what. Yeah, they will open the door for you and say sorry if they bump into you. <laughs> and, but, uh, and like, bye, bitch. <laughs> but yeah, they're not going to engage with you. And I I don't find that in... Actually, no, I do find that in all Canadian cities that I have like go to. So Vancouver is really bad for that. Um, There, I saw a post or a story about there's a guy in Vancouver who hasn't ever really had any like meaningful friendships in his life, and he lives in Vancouver. And so he was like trying to go out and put himself out there and like do activities and take classes and Mm -hmm. whatever, and just like he was just like people here don't want to make new friends and it's like he's like it's really depressing and i was like oh my god it's so <laughs> sad but it's true i feel like i've had the uh conversation so many times with people lately that about how difficult it is to make friends at this like stage in life mm-hmm. um especially folks who are living in toronto and vancouver in the yeah. bigger yeah. cities yeah it's definitely harder. Uh, I Yeah, I think it's harder, but it's also, I think, in part because those are places where a lot of people don't leave. Like, mm-hmm. if you grow up there, you like to stay there. Yeah. And so, you, I, from my experience growing up in Vancouver, a lot of people that I know are still friends with their friends from high school and don't hang out with anyone new. <laughs> Which, yeah, no, I... No I new friends. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing I really hate in Toronto and people like still have cliques based on where you went to high school Absolutely. and shit. And like, especially the more elite or private school yeah. culture yeah. Um, permeates well into adulthood and, and, and yeah, the, the hashtag no new friends mentality is actually quite toxic. It, it, yeah. it really is. And I'm like, don't you grow? Like, don't you grow as people? Like, what's the matter with you? Yeah. You don't evolve? What the fuck's the matter with you? Yeah. Like, I, I don't... Well, I've had my same friends through high school. So... You can have the same friends, but you could also have other friends. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, so you're all a clique from, like, diapers? Like, and you're 40? Like, <laughs> I see. Have you left the city, first of all? Have you yeah. lived anywhere else? I just want to know. Oh, that's the other thing is that um, Americans, they say, move around more mm-hmm. than Canadians. Like oh, they, they move around mm-hmm. their own country more and they move mm-hmm. and they, they live different, more places. To be fair, it's cheaper to move around. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it is here. But, but yeah, no, I, and I think that's part of it. The, mm-hmm. the more, used- t- yeah, the more time you, you spend trying to meet new people and. And getting outside of, you know, your yeah. um, your view of the your world expands. Yeah, and, yeah totally. Yeah, totally. Because you, you have empathy for other people who are trying to make new friends mm-hmm. and who are new to a place. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the more sort of people of different um, experiences you know adds to that empathy and that expansion of empathy, too. All right. So let's get into it. Um, this week in feminism, we're going to talking about how actually in the same vein as moving, uh, one of the benefits of moving in with a partner is being able to split expenses, giving people a bit of financial peace of mind. However, it's these very financial issues that can morph into a form of abuse and control in a relationship. These scenarios run the gambit from, we're not in love, but I suppose this will do until my next paycheck, 
to the much more frightening situation of living with an abusive partner but being too broke to move out. The National Domestic Violence Hotline in America characterizes this dynamic as, quote, financial or economic abuse. Examples of this can include giving a person an allowance and closely watching how they spend it or demanding receipts for their purchases or placing your paycheck in their bank account and denying you access to it. In a poll of 2,040 people in the UK, 28% of surveyed participants currently in a relationship admitted that financial security was a key factor keeping them with their current partner. But regardless of where you live in the world, uh, basic living expenses are becoming a concern, particularly when many of the best-paying jobs are located in major metropolitan areas. Of course, the proximity of housing to such well-paying jobs is part of what drives up rental costs. For example, the cost of an apartment in Manhattan reached a record high last year. In 2015, L.A. had rental vacancies at just 3.3% in a city of 3.9 million people. And in the U.K., 352,000 renters were threatened with eviction in 2015. These types of situations put young people at the mercy of their landlords or partners, especially when you consider the global pay gap. Women are, partic- are put into extremely precarious p- positions. So, Erica, um, we tend to think of housing as an issue that only really affects people at the lowest income levels. So how might we go about changing that narrative? Housing, housing is an issue no matter which class you are. It's um, once it takes up a certain amount of a certain proportion of your take-home pay, it's an issue. It doesn't matter if you are, you know, on the higher end of the scale or the lower end of the scale. I mean, a rise in house prices. It's The thing is, is that the house is, or the home, for a lot of people is their biggest asset. But those are those are for people who buy homes. I mean, renting is a totally different issue. And the people who rent are usually are the most are usually the most precarious people in terms of employment and in terms of um where they are in their career so a lot of people who may change jobs a lot may rent although um on the other hand renting may just on a macro level be symptomatic of something else going on with the housing stock when it comes to buying and mortgages and liquidity and so on and so forth it's it really is because there's so many factors around housing it really is um it really does affect people from the lowest part of the income scale to well i'm not talking about the wealthy who can afford whatever but to even higher ends of the income scale. So, Amy, um, in 2017, uh, CMHC, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, found a vacancy rate of 1.7% for rental apartments in Ottawa, which was down from 3% in 2016. And so, like, as someone who, you know, you recently moved and I'm considering moving, like, you know, the average rent for a two-bedroom apartment... um, is now up $1,200 from, like, it, you know, in 2017 from 2016. And that's crazy. So aside from just, like, adding more affordable housing, mm-hmm. are there any other kind of policy options or nonprofit options that, like, the government 
at the provincial and also like the city level should or and even federal level should or could consider. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are technically, as I understand it, the ability for uh, municipal governments uh, to mandate that developers allocate uh, where there is vacancy, um, affordable housing within existing buildings or within new builds. Um, and I think more of that sort of um, regulation is required to be imposed on all of these new developments. I mean, you see so many condos going up in Ottawa and in cities across Canada now um, at very unaffordable prices for purchase. But at the um, and I can't imagine and I, and a lot of them you know, are ultimately investment properties. But if there is a way to set it up right at the get-go that you're, if you're building, you know, X number of stories, you have to build however many floors for, um, for of affordable housing integrated into those buildings. I think we'd be a lot better off. We have the power to do it, but it's not um, something developers are for. And it's not something that's typically done as, as often or to the extent that it needs to be. There's also a lot of vacant lots in this city that are just like old dilapidated buildings where owners are sitting on the building waiting for, um, you know, for the, the price to rise to the point that it's worth it to demolish and sell. Um, I'm, I'm picturing like a couple um, very obvious locations, even in Centertown and uh, old Ottawa South, there, where there are just these like lots big enough that you, if the city wanted to, um, you know, expropriate the land and build on it itself. It totally, I think it, it ought to. And it's, a, it's more of an a understanding of uh, changing our understanding of what our laws are there to do and, and, and being more creative about kind of making housing and affordable housing, a political priority um, and a social priority in a community where I think now it's, it's like, wouldn't it be nice if we could do this? Yeah. I don't see many places in Ottawa and even really in other cities that I visit, I mean, I'm speaking particularly about Vancouver, about places that are building primarily rental properties. Like, yeah, that's less and less common now. Yeah, people are just relying just rentals. It's yeah, you're they're building condos and townhouses to sell and hope that those people will rent, but they may or may not. They may or may not, but also like they're going to be renting. Um, but yeah, so they're also trusting that those people are going to be renting it out at a, an affordable rate. Right. But like most people who have an income property and are renting it out they want to be able to cover their mortgage regardless of how much that is and whether or not it's in line with what the actual rental market should be or is well and then you have things like airbnb and other types of uh short-term rental opportunities where you can rent for even higher than um you know i mean you're making like you're making bank more than just like a return on investment and then like I get it if you're putting your money into something it's probably because you you're trying to profit from it but um I don't know how to what extent we should be enabling that in fact I think we shouldn't be enabling that as much as we can um because you see the effects of this it's it's frustrating because a lot of the conversation um too around affordable housing and um and and uh women uh, specifically have has actually focused more on shelters on short-term um, accommodation and 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 think that's really important and we don't have uh, enough shelters for women the other thing we don't have enough of is shelters uh, that are um, 
suited for women coming with their children, which is really uh, common. I know that um, the YWCA had called for a uh, gendered uh, lens on the national housing mm-hmm. strategy last year. And they have uh, a, a report that they put out with a, with a lot of great suggestions and, and a lot of really just troubling data about um, you know, how many uh, w- women, there are 8,000 8, women and children in shelters on a single night in Canada. And uh, 78% are in those shelters due to violence. What's the connection you're making between Well, I'm sh- just saying like the, the shelter questions is like the interim stopgap, but like those numbers are really high. They're not, you can't sustain that volume of people. And knowing that most people are it- going, visiting shelters due to violence, there is needs to be a corresponding, well, what is the long-term strategy or placement for where those people are going to go because but, if it's back to their home where domestic abuse is happening like that's a huge issue but we're assuming that it's women running from domestic abuse or women in domestic abuse situations that are um accessing this shelter system uh, i'm i'm get what i'm trying to say is that in terms of the rental market for women it may not even be uh, quote-unquote domestic abuse situation, it may actually be that a woman just wants to leave. Sure. And I, I, and yeah. in terms of... I'm just saying that there's a bigger sort of cohort here, and it's all different women who may just want to leave their relationship but can't mm-hmm. because of the price of renting. Um, they would actually be... Um, it may be more difficult for them. So, for example... If if you're dating an asshole and who's not necessarily violent or abusive, well, but domestic violence includes also psychological violence. I'm not it's even not I'm not even talking about psychological mm-hmm. violence. I'm just talking about if you're a woman who wants to leave a situation, it's just a shitty relationship. Just a shitty relationship. It's harder to do so because she. Um, because you may have to give up some things like even transportation, for example, to work. Um, because naturally, if especially if you're working downtown or something like that, the um, what you're able to afford is further out, then transportation becomes an even bigger issue. I, I'm just saying that there are trade-offs and Absolutely. there are all sorts of consequences. And I think this is like for women in general mm-hmm. and not just women in precarious right. I situations. I guess what, what I'm saying is though like the issue that we also have is the one of like precarity and vulnerability and people who sure. are in in life or death situations and still there is next to no action on this issue. So just to sort of <laughs> highlight like how... Uh, yeah, there's a yeah, gap in the system. There's a huge gap in the system. And if we're not even concerned about um, more permanent solutions for women in, shel- in shelters due to violence, and, I, I, you know, we're a far ways from looking at all housing from a gender-based uh, gender lens. Yeah, and, like, the housing issue is, and like, being in a shitty relationship and not being able to leave, um, whether or not it's abusive, like, that ripples has a ripple effect because like then someone's mental health suffers mm-hmm. and therefore their productivity suffers and then they might lo- actually end up losing their mm-hmm. job we d- depending on what industry they're in and so if they lose their job then they actually have to stay like what are they going to do mm-hmm. like they're in a worse off position than they already were which then it's just like a um, a snowballing effect and you know it, it affects other policy areas too and mm-hmm. i think if we are able to address kind of the like housing is a very big 
um, chunk of financial capital. And like that's your biggest expense generally. And if you can kind of get that under control, then mm-hmm. the other parts of your life can kind of start stabilizing. For sure. And I mean, there, the other thing that this made me think of when you're talking about types of reforms is, you know, so much of our thinking is rooted in um, traditional marriage and relying on divorce, uh, the, the Divorce Act and other types of family law protections, which has, I mean historically weren't super favorable are increasingly so in terms of if you own a shared home the split is 50 50 that's a bit more obvious but now you know accounts for common law but if you're not common law and you don't own there is a gap there as well about how the law treats you um in terms of your your um your rental lease agreement right um is not as it's not accounted for uh in the same way and so i think there's definitely a need to update the law in in keeping uh with sort of how people in fact do live their lives in, in a mo- in a more modern sense the divorce act um is currently being reviewed um i don't know actually perhaps it may have even passed but um, there is uh, Bill C-78, which was reforming the Divorce Act to make it less combative, a bit more of a, um, you know, administrative process where you wouldn't require so many legal fees and, and being an overly litigious place because that was the other issue is an access to justice problem where if you are, you know, and, and typically women who can't, who are not the, um, you know, main bread winner or whatever you you know you ha- you're going to be outspent legally in terms of how you're pursuing mm-hmm. um uh your your family law action and in some cases the law favors women in terms of uh, to some extent child custody and to some extent spousal support payments because of that but you need to kind of lawyer up to actually get any of those gains right. um and so i think it's sort of trying to do away with that but there is a bigger question about how well what is but what does this mean for folks who don't Oh, don't own property and don't have the kind of capital that you could easily split, but to have the value of a lease between them or something, uh, something like that. Um, so I just quickly Googled and uh, the va- the rental vacancy rate in Vancouver is 0.3%. Uh, wow. <laughs> 0.3. Holy shit. Um, which is obviously the lowest rate in Canada. And uh, they have the, I mean, kind of surprising. They have the second highest uh, rental rate, which is, sorry, rental um, price, which uh, for a one bedroom is $2,034, which is $300 below that of Toronto, which has the highest, highest cost of renting in Canada. Mm-hmm. God, that's so de- that's so defeating. And you know what? You know what that and results into. I mean, it's it's other forms of discrimination as well. Um, you know, I I for a lot of friends who've moved out to Vancouver and have really struggled finding housing. And you, you know, we've all heard these stories of people sharing inordinately small spaces and and basement apartments for families of four and and that sort of thing, um, or commuting from from quite a distance to get to the downtown core. Um, but I've also heard stories from friends who've experienced um, discrimination in looking for housing because they are in um, uh, non-heterosexual uh, couples or they were trans uh, or had a partner who was trans and just would would go to these viewings with so many other mm-hmm. people. And you could see 
everyone else is being treated and catered to and they're ignored and yeah. their application's not accepted um, or even really looked at when it's handed over and, and just like really blatant stuff. Um, and I, th- I mean, this, you know, makes almost gives an excuse uh like it's harder to prove discrimination it's harder to pursue those things when the vacancy Mm -hmm. rate is what it is and the the folks who are renting are um in such a position of power like the deferential is just that much greater um it's pretty outrageous i think it it's clear that more and more um people who are already marginalized or or, you know are going to be more so because of the the power deferential absolutely so uh, moving on um the Ontario Provincial Police recently named a new head of its police force. However, this is the same man that is set to testify before a tribunal about his alleged mishandling of a sexual harassment complaint under his watch at the Toronto Police Service. So as he's set on to take on a higher paying, better job, he actually also needs to answer for the things he did at his lower level job. And we say white men don't fail up. <laughs> Affirmative action Ugh. for white people. White men have it so hard. So, in the spring of 2019, Ron Traverner is expected to testify before the province's Human Rights Tribunal about how he handled a junior officer's concerns about sexual harassment, including allegations he discouraged the complainant from speaking out in the first place. The OPP, the Ontario Police. Prote- The OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, is also before the tribunal, facing its own human rights complaint from dozens of female members who have accused the provincial service of systemic discrimination. So going back to Tavener, uh, Premier Doug Ford, who actually is a friend of Superintendent Tavener, has described the veteran officer as the right leader for the service, but said he had no part in his selection, which was done by an independent panel and later signed off on by Premier Ford and his cabinet. The province has not released the province has released few details about the selection process for the OPP commissioner position. It's not known if Superintendent Taverner's alleged role in the sexual harassment case before the Human Rights Tribunal was factored into the panel's decision. The OPP is also facing a gender-based discrimination complaint at the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, in which hearings are currently underway. The applicants allege that civilian employees, who are predominantly women, face systemic discrimination and that they have been underpaid compared to uniformed officers, who are mostly male, and who are doing the same or similar jobs. The case goes well beyond pay, claiming the women are also subjected to fewer benefits, training opportunities, and chances of promotion, and that they face wide-ranging sexism. Erica, are you surprised? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Come back to me when I stop laughing. So this is why you don't invite police chiefs to your diversity panel. I'm just saying. (laughs) Yeah. And Erica's referencing a fact that the Ontario, the chief of the Ottawa police services was on a panel on uh, diversity. Diversity. Yeah. Who is also before the human rights tribunal for a case of racial discrimination. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's why I wrap it up for people not in the know. Yeah. 
So that's the reference, people. Um, so what you're saying is that the police are a shitty place to work. <laughs> like, Well, I mean, they're not doing themselves any favors. No, they're not. And then we wonder why they're like, I don't, I, I'm surprised this isn't happening. Like there isn't a lawsuit against every police force in this country. Well, to be clear, there probably are. I mean, besides Calgary, Ottawa, and Toronto is what I know of right now. I'm sure there are others who just don't know about yeah. them. Yeah. There are some constantly. The other thing is, I mean, you know, this, these aren't lawsuits. These are human rights complaints, which, I mean, have to some extent the same thing, but a little bit uh different i mean we saw the class actions against the rcmp for sexual harassment um there was uh, a number of uh the the military uh suits that are happening Mm -hmm. class actions for women in the uh, caf um so it's all of these law enforcement type spaces definitely are a breeding ground for this kind of misogyny the other thing is a lot of uh police forces are unionized and have associations so there may be grievances and other things but we don't hear about them in the same way that we hear about the uh non-unionized work environments where there are class action type lawsuits but these complaints are really um oh yeah no these complaints are really uh troubling if you look at the facts of the one for the toronto uh police association uh the woman who came forward um constable zarabi majd uh has uh not has argued is is arguing not just um uh sexual harassment and being dissuaded from making complaints there it's it's a systemic cultural thing that she's raising um objectifying her and other women constables for how they look in their bodies going um posting uh, pornographic photos in the workplace oh my gosh um also she's also raising issues of islamophobic comments and racist comments that um happen in the workplace that are just absolutely um normalized and happen on a daily basis um i don't understand these men like I'm gonna, okay. I'm gonna, I don't understand these police officers who think that just because they're not in a formal business casual work environment that they think that it's okay to comment on people's bodies and post pornographic photos around. That's like, probably what's been happening all the time. Like not doing it is probably new for them. Sh- sure, but like, why do they think that just because they don't work in a corporate environment that that it makes them special. Well, to be fair, well, that probably does happen in some corporate sure, environments. Absolutely. The the thing, I mean, it, and you know, as she rightly points out, there's a she, you know, she says there's a matrix of policies that are unenforced, inaccessible, otherwise ineffective. People are are going are, are allowed to go rogue. Uh, there's no real clear supervision in in law enforcement. There is a huge culture, as we well know, of like this sort of we support each other. Uh, you know, brothers in blue sort of thinking, and we allow, and we look the other way, or we at least, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, and so that sort of the the self policing isn't there as well, um, and so that I mean that's what allows that to happen. That's that's the culture, and and I think also in law enforcement there is a, a certain, um, you know, I mean that's not. To, I think there are folks who are probably very well meaning who end up in law enforcement because they believe in some a sort of a higher virtue. 
that's not law enforcement in a systemic way is not in fact that. And a lot of people who are drawn to law enforcement and also because of the work that they do on a day to day basis do feel that they are above laws, above certain rules. A lot of them are, are psychos. A lot, like, <laughs> there's a power tripping as yeah, aspect to it. They can't, they're in huge. raining. And as much as they're about like, you know, for everybody else abide by these laws, the laws are what they are. That's not in fact how they run their own lives or their own operation. Yeah. The, the, we're not in the times anymore where I, in my opinion, I don't think that law enforcement should be given the benefit of the doubt. I don't think that we need to, I don't think that we should trust their word just because they say so. Mm -hmm. I think they are consistent abusers of power Mm -hmm. and on, and the fact is, is that they're, and when you put on that uniform, it becomes state sanctioned power yeah. tripping. It, it, whatever abuse that they have created is state sanctioned abuse once they have that uniform on. So they can have the power, but I'm going to quote Peter Parker's, what is it? His dad, his uncle? Uncle. Like, re- it comes with responsibility. I heard that. Listen, I heard somebody say just that on a different show, and I thought of you, Aaron. You really fucked up that quote. I, I really did. <laughs> anyway, you get your own. It's cool. Whatever. It's the point is, is that it, it, like it's it's a balance, and you have mm-hmm. to have that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And we don't. I mean, everybody wants power, and nobody wants the responsibility. Everybody, yeah. everybody. And it like you can't have one without the other without having Which, chaos. Well, you can. Yeah, I was gonna say you could apply that to literally any, everything, anything like yeah. any celebrity. Like look at fucking Kevin Hart this week. He wants to have this platform, but isn't going to like apologize for anything. Yeah. So that went fast. <laughs> grand opening, grand closing. <laughs> but it, yeah, I mean, yeah. In, in law enforcement, there is. Uh, you know, selective application of ideas of rules and order and chain of command. That's and right. often yeah. those things are used to in- create internal protections and to exert external from power. That, that accountability. Um, for sure. And I mean, they, you know, in, and in this case, this, this, the constable in the uh, TPS case uh, is diagnosed with PTSD and, and, um, uh, anxiety and depression as a result of the things that she experienced. That's that's what she's put forward in her claim. Um, you know, be, you know, and because of the the long uh, and ongoing nature of of all of this, um, uh, and there, you know, there's detailed uh, detailed account of of, uh, of what she's put forward. But then you have, I guess, there's a uh, internal review of the uh, TPS done at some point to see. Um, you know, how they were living up to these types of standards. And, and there's no real outcome from that. In fact, they, they just continue to validate themselves. Same with the uh, OPP, I think, also did a review of their practices uh, to see whether or not the gender-based discrimination was in fact happening. And they said, oh, you know, we're abiding by all of the legislation and all of the, uh, uh, you know, legal matrix matrices. Uh, matrices matrices maybe that's why i'm doing it wrong uh, <laughs> um and, and it's it's the fact that there is no in no external oversight to policing that we let policing oversee itself is also uh, a huge part of the the problem of, of huge take, problem. there's no i mean there's no Not need to be teeth. accountable when you know that you are going to be the la- the final word 
if you know you have the final word, why, you know, there's no need to be accountable at any level of the process. Well, that's why I don't trust Paul. Sorry. Uh, that's why I don't. Pol- oh, you want to no, say? I was, no, no, I was, I was just going like, to say like police oversight is like a rushing Russian nesting doll of like corruption. Police uh, don't really have anybody to answer to, actually, mm-hmm. if you think about it. And these tough on crime um, political um, positions, whenever I hear tough on crime, I just think more police power, more police control, mm-hmm. and more police abuse. Mm-hmm. That's all I think about. Tough, tough on crime yeah. equals police abuse to me. Yeah. Tough on crime for everybody but police officers mm-hmm. who are committing crimes. I mean, right. you know, acting in a discriminatory manner is a is I mean it's not criminal in that sense, but it is illegal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. That's not that doesn't matter. Yeah. Although certainly committing sexual assault would be uh, illegal, but we're gonna look the other way. Yeah. Murdering civilians definitely illegal, but we're gonna look the other way. Yeah. It's like tough on crime for everyone, but those who are armed and <laughs> and let's not pretend how much like I feel like masculinity becomes toxic in those environments. Um, white male masculine quote unquote power becomes um, what you call it uh, like concentrated because it's reinforced by mm-hmm. everybody around you all the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's Good just point. seems to me like it's really a place where um, all of those isms breed and are just and they're encouraged because the people who became before you did the same thing Mm -hmm. and that's their way of policing of managing within of all these things and it seems to me like it's just then it just crystallizes in the culture yeah the police just seemed fucked to me (laughs) i'm i'm i don't i'm i'm like well how do you even begin to clean up that stench like i don't i don't even know what where do you start? <laughs> I, mean, I especially from such a top-down organization. What do you it. do? You, well, <laughs> that did cross my mind. Like, do you cut off the head? Like, what do you do? How would you even begin to fix such a putrid I organization? I can't. DM us. Let us know. What yeah, you like we're gonna crowdsource this do, problem. <laughs> maybe we. Maybe they should go the way of USA Gymnastics. <laughs> Declare, <laughs> Declare bankruptcy. They're funded by the province. Bro, let's cut off their funding. Let's let's. You know what? I would love a funding review. If I, this is why you don't want me to be a politician, is because were it for me. I would I would review I would fund review those motherfuckers. I'd be like, why do you need money for this? All of this scrutiny that they put through social programs, all the scrutiny they put through social programs. And do you really need that funding? We'll just make it project based. You get no a based funding. And we'll see. We'll then see how how they would hate me. They would assassinate me. I swear. I would, that's the first thing I would do. You would never get to that position because they would prevent you from rising to that degree of power. I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. Listen, if they're calling Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a bitch, then like... Oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm their worst nightmare. <laughs> I, would, I would definitely cut off the funding of those fuckers. I really would. I do it like... <laughs> Like the but Republicans you, do try to do the Obamacare every session. <laughs> it's it's interesting because no one ever runs on that 
people only run on increasing police budgets or staying silent on police. Why budgets. should the police have a billion dollar motherfucking but, but that's budget how much power in Toronto? They have right? exactly. It, it's astounding. Like you can't even. Have, it's also. I don't think you can, a candidate could even have this conversation. But it's also like an a misunderstanding. Like the the populace is also misinformed on the issue. Like if someone sure. was like, we should defund the police, they'd be like. No law and order. Like everyone's gonna run yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's gonna go crazy. But so, like, they can't just do that. They they would need to also provide some sort of like solution for it. I understand. Like, okay, I don't want like malicious start happening. No. Okay. So I'm. But there's no way that. Tor- Why the fuck yeah. should Toronto you have, to, you have, have a billion down. motherfucking dollar well, you have budget? You break something down and build it back up. But okay. The, the, the thing is, I mean, and it's just different kinds of spending. It's this, and, and so, and it's how it's spent, and policing whom, and for what. And then there's also the increasing militarization of police forces in terms of yeah. the. Uh, actual equipment that they use mm-hmm. and and their whole operation has become very elaborate and i think we need to be extreme and it's it's you're right like why is the um government oversight around that kind of spending because it's real, exactly. like I, I would actually like they're they're entering into a space that is not act, in fact about policing they are becoming their own sub-military forces that's on, right. a, on a, a very local level. That's um, in a right. Way that's completely un, unneeded. And then when something happens, probably a question of civil, dis- an act of civil disobedience, that's when those guys are rolling out. That's right. And you know what? The other thing, too, is if they're doing this to their own, what the fuck do you think they're going to do to you? That's the other thing. If they're mm. so into the blue wall and protecting their own, if they're treating their own like this... Guess what the fuck they're going to do to you with their new militarized equipment, their tanks and shit like it it would be a fucking Tiananmen Square like that's what I'm saying. Yet nobody wants to think about, oh, cutting the police at the knees and they should be. They should be. I'm not saying why. See, the other thing I would do is that I would re- then reallocate resources to community policing efforts and um, like them actually getting out of their like office and actually making connections with people on the street without carding them. You know, that kind of thing. Um, I actually used to be a community police officer. Ooh. Yeah, so I well, well have a degree in criminology. This and is wa- interesting information about you. And Aaron. I wanted to become a police officer because, like, what do you do with a criminology degree? Like, I don't know. Um, you and, go into government. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I wanted to, like, be a police officer in Vancouver, not for, like, the RCMP. Like, it was never an RCMP thing. I wanted to be a forensic um Yeah, I also wanted to be some in forensics too, but yeah. you needed a science degree and I was like, well that's not going to happen. I have to take math. <laughs> I was like, well the last time I took science was 11th grade biology, so <laughs> it's a no for me. Um so <laughs> That's a hard pass. <laughs> yeah. S- same with math. So um but uh, yeah, so I did uh, community policing and uh, you really don't have like in Canada, you don't really have much power. Like we would try to find like we would run like license plates and try to find stolen cars. I found one in like the year I, I did it or over a year I was volunteering. Um, and then we would like go around and like pick up needles. That was like the extent of what we could do. It sounds like community service for like kind of for like. Mm you know but like that was juvenile but the thing is like that type of thing was like what 
looked good on your application, but you didn't have to like talk to people um, and you didn't make connections and help them like, like make them see uh, people with authority as like positive things. You didn't? No. So what the fuck was the program about? It was literally like going around picking up needles and shit. That's not community policing. That's like community hours. That's like Naomi Campbell community hours. Yeah. <laughs> but like there, you know, there are a lot of needles uh, in Vancouver at like parks and shit. So like, fair, it's fine, fair. Yeah. But you, if you don't talk to anybody, then what the fuck's the point? Yeah. Okay. See, I'm like, this is why you don't want me to be a politician. And you're right. I wouldn't raise. I would have these crazy ideas, and then they would just lock me in the closet somewhere because they want. They don't want me acting on these crazy ideas, like defunding the fucking police. Okay. Stay tuned for rent and receipts. <laughs> Now we're moving on to rent and receipts. This is where we each bring something to share with the others and, you know, bitch about it or rant about it or whatever you want. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll kick it off. This is uh, something I wanted to raise last week when we talked about the Women's March, but I also thought it would merit its own conversation. And it's a story that had just been unfolding. Um, and I think there's a lot of uh, takeaways for uh, all, you know, activists in general. Um, so, for those who haven't been following uh, Pride Teo, uh, the Toronto Pride Parade has been uh, having a lot of uh, internal strife with, in terms of the community um, backing in uh, because they've after uh, the ban to not allow uniformed police officers to attend the parade, they've now been invited back. There's just two years after um, after that ban was put in place with really no accountability and no uh, measure or reason as to why. And in fact, it's something that a lot of folks who are uh, part of the Pride TO community are, are very much uh, wholeheartedly against. Um, but you, what some of the discussion now is a call for the new executive director of Pride Toronto, um, Olivia Numa, uh, is being asked to step down for some of her comments. She's sort of taken, she, she's a, a black woman who is uh, the, now the head of, of Pritio, and we know that Pritio uh, struggle, uh, like the, the scrutiny and the uh, drive to take police out of it was coming from Black Lives Matter Toronto. Um, and now you have a, 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 this woman stepping up as executive director who, who is using the language of intersections of blackness and queerness and a pride to um, sort of uh, p- put legitimacy on the police being invited back. Um, that uh, arguing that you know the movement uh, needs to to grow uh, together with these uh, with these outside forces, including police. Um, you know, she doesn't you know saying things like traveling back further. Um, you know, in, in looking back at, at historical movements, um, you know, this is uh, where it needs to go, and sort of this very like co opting language um, and and. Co- that that argument that in order to move forward we need to sort of reconcile with the oppressors even you know talking about um how you know indigenous communities uh fought against colonialism um but like really just sort of bastardizing those histories referring to black lives matter um you know as a sub movement to pride which it most certainly is not in fact you know it is not yeah. <laughs> but just to sort of i'm i'm having a really hard yeah it's um you know, anyway, it's, it's, it's a very, uh, un, 
uh, frustrating perspective that she's bringing, um, which is, uh, you know, essentially silencing this this sort of dissent um, and and not really. And instead of putting the conversation back to the Toronto Police Services to justify why they ought to be there, what they've done to to uh, make amends, she talks about and uh, instead saying, well, we need we need to ta- step in and make uh, create a new relationship with them almost, um, which I think is is uh, like a very problematic way to look at it. Um, you know, the, the truth is that, you know, police are a huge source of violence in uh to in 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 towards rather lgbtq folks and to black people uh in canada very much so um uh, a source of of abject violence um and you know in the it's it's frustrating in toronto in particular that in the year of um you know the bruce MacArthur serial uh, you know serial attacks and the dismissiveness of police that police would be invited back uh, in light of this but all of which is to say, uh, you know, so there have been calls for her resignation. There was a meeting of, uh, of, of the Pryteo, uh community uh, general meeting uh, this uh, uh, just a, cu- a couple of days ago. And uh, unfortunately, it was one of those to- sort of manufactured situations where it wasn't on the agenda. You know, the meeting was, you know, shut down very quickly um, or 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 without, you know, without a, a more uh, uh, fulsome conversation about it. Uh, and I think there's there's obviously a lot of frustration, but it, you know I, I'm, I'm trying to kind of capture a lot of the things I've read about this. You should all go read about them. There's a lot um, uh, that's been uh, published on a lot of folks who've written some very uh, well, um, you know, w- well stated op-eds about why this is actually harmful, why this isn't in keeping with the history of Pride. At the end of the day, you know, Pride is a is a movement, is a protest, is is um, you know started with from a place of civil as civil disobedience it is not a place for corporations which is i think what people are sensing that the influence of uh corporate corporate interests and in wanting to use pride as a vehicle for advancing uh their brands and and doing promotional work is really what is uh behind the executive and the executive director's motivations to bring police back to make pride toronto uh profitable essentially um and um you know, but the reality is that that's not, I don't, you know, that's far from what Pride was ever uh, really uh, about. Um, and it still needs to be like the idea that there isn't a need for, um, you know, action and uh, calls to uh, calls to action around issues affecting LGBTQ people is is bullshit. It's not, you know, it's we're not at a place of complete celebration either. Mm-hmm. And I think that that that's really frustrating. I think pride um, is going through the same thing that feminism is in that corporate way. It's it's this yeah. corporatization of LGBTQ plus um, issues and sort of quote unquote triumphs, but it only takes a piece of the LGBTQ plus um, community and that piece is white and able to afford a cottage on Muskoka mm-hmm. and um, and male, overwhelmingly male. And so um, I find that uh, just how we were talking about how feminism is is has been corporatized from 
being a social movement to almost like as um uh, a corporate social responsibility movement mm. I yeah. feel like pride has has gone through the same thing and I think Absolutely. that the people who are saying no to police of pride is not only a rejection of police it's a rejection of that mm-hmm. it's a rejection of being mm-hmm. subsumed by the structure Absolutely. and um and being ultimately changed and erased by that structure and and just to add as another piece of, of news that's sort of flowing from all this a uh I guess a week or so ago, the federal government announced a $450,000 grant to Pride Toronto to help, uh, as they say, uh, strategies to make LGBT communities in Canada live more securely, uh, which is, uh, you know, a bit odd. I mean, that could mean any number of things, but it was announced by Bill Morneau. Uh, and uh, he was joined by the executive director of Pride uh, Toronto for that announcement. Um, you know, they talk about institutional systemic barriers that lead to negative outcomes for the LGBT community, um, especially those who've encountered cr- the criminal justice system. That all sounds uh, well and well and good on paper, but I think the proximity to government grants for these sorts of things, the proximity to, uh, and and you can almost guarantee, I bet you in the background of this was a, uh, promised by Pride TO to allow police back into uh, the parade on the condition of, of this type of funding. And, and anytime those those funds are there and, and it's con- conditional, I think it's, it's um, you know, it's it really limits what the movement can do and, and, and takes the power again, further that's diffuses right. power yep. away from the people. But that's the point, right? Yeah. No, exactly. Is that, it's, is that in in that subsuming that um, I was just talking about is that you disarm the movement and that is the way movements have been disarmed uh, over time. So when people say, this is why I always go back to, no, you can't change the system from within. That's why is because is because the system subsumes other um, other like threats to it in some sort. It either it either destroys the threat yeah. or it subsumes the threat and then changes it to become more like that, like its bigger structure. So I have a quick question. Why does this seem like a very unique Toronto problem? Like it seems like Toronto Pride is always facing these types of issues versus other pride um, parades across Canada. I think Vancouver Pride had a similar issue. But it's not to this scale. Like, it seems like every few months, and particularly once it gets up, ramping up to pride season, Toronto Pride is always... Well, there are, there, this is an issue that's happening in uh, other pride parades across North America in terms of police uh, engagement and, you know, in this uh, no justice, no pride sort of uh, movement. You know, in Washington, uh, D.C., New York, Seattle, Columbus, Columbus, uh, Minneapolis, Boston and Phoenix um, are uh, calling out, you know, pride parades for um, and, and the you know, the mainstream movement as being in complicity with systems of oppression that further further marginalize queer and trans individuals. Um, and in the States, this is tied to uh, the large U.S. banks, particularly Wells Fargo. Um, for their involvement in the Dakota Access Pipeline Project, but they're also, you know, uh, huge funders of, of these pride parades. Um, you know, you see um, 
the anti uh, so the anti corporate sentiment and also the the police uh, of affiliation and pride has been called out across North America. I think Toronto is uh, fortunate to have such an active and really um, engaged and creative Black Lives Matter chapter. I was just yeah. about and that's to who say that's owing yeah. to. Yeah. Um, and I think in smaller communities in Canada, maybe they or the, and they think you know in, in Ottawa we certainly have um, you know activists who are calling for similar things but the the momentum quite isn't there or there just isn't a big enough uh uh group or you know hasn't quite coalesced yet but i imagine it will and i and uh i think you know pride to owes that um or rather the community in toronto um owes a debt to uh you know, black, black lives act- matter yeah, and black yeah. activists for, for pushing yeah. black and queer activists yeah. for pushing this forward. I think this whole issue has really expanded to the part where, um, and I want to like, I want to give a shout out to black lives matter too, because mm-hmm. they have done some great work on this issue and this issue of policing and the safety, like where the point is, is that, at some point, even the police are going to have to explain why, you know, they're not, um, they're going through, like, let's put it this way, uh, a really bad image. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the more that we find out about lawsuits against them for sexual uh, harassment and assault and racial discrimination and so on and so forth. It's just like, thank you, Black Lives Matter, for starting this narrative. Mm -hmm. And this narrative is sticking. Mm -hmm. That's the thing, Mm -hmm. is that every pride, Mm -hmm. even in Ottawa, we had that, I don't know what the mayor came up with, like, I don't but but the question they, they wanted to wear their uniform. But the question yeah. was raised, and they were challenged, and, I, exactly. and it's definitely feeding out. There are other, um, you know, I'll just say there's a great piece in now Toronto about the, this history. Um, but there, you know, it, other examples of this type of action, um, not just around policing, but you know, in Vancouver Pride in 2015, the organizers um, barred uh, the BC Liberals uh, from participating by making participants sign a pledge, all participants sign a pledge to support trans people in the province's human rights code, Good which for is a position them. that the BC Liberals at the time had opposed for, for a long time. Good for them. And by pressuring them, the party and then reverse its position and pass a trans rights bill in 2016. Hmm. What? Yeah. And this Man- is Black Lives Matter? No, this is, uh, this, or is Pride. Vancou- this is Vancouver Pride. Vancouver so Pride. So okay. behind Vancouver yeah. Pride yeah. Uh, were able to, to do this um, in Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, they've panned Jason Kenney's United Conservative Party from marching the last two years, um, saying that the party was unable to demonstrate a commitment to all segments of the queer community after the UCP opposed a bill to support uh, gay straight alliances in Alberta schools. Um, and, and, you know, so pride is not a free for all. This idea that it has to be for everyone, that it's, you know, um, anyone can march is, is yeah. complete co-option. You, you know, pride ha- still has... Uh, it could still have be a vehicle for change and by, you know, having, you know, a, a purpose and a vision and, and driving behind like key, you know, and going in and it's specifically about addressing oppression uh, within the within the, the LGBTQ community um, as well. You're able to do this. And so, you know, get, getting behind uh, whether it's it's black 
queer folks or trans people, um, you know, who are the most marginalized in that community and, and using the power of that movement to affect change. I mean, that's the whole point. It's not an invite for the lowest hanging fruit to all agree mm-hmm. that, you know, gay rights are, are, are fine. You know? Yeah. It like goes it's back, not enough anymore. It's, it can't be. The, it goes back to what we talked about when we did the guild event. We talked mm-hmm. about branding and having corporate or business values that align with your own personal values. And it's basically having, you know, sponsors and people participate in the parade and in your movement that have the same values as you. And, you know, the Women's March needs to really be careful that they're not aligning themselves with people who don't believe in a living wage, who don't believe in treating people with respect with regards to hours and labor um, situations. And then having, you know, with like pride and having people like corporations, regardless of whether or not they're the police or a business or a huge funder for the parade that don't align with their values. Yeah. If women's march and pride aren't about advancing the interests of black women and indigenous women and women of color, there's really no fucking point. Um, you know, to say, you know, I like women is not enough for you to be invited <laughs> to participate in the march, you know, like that's and and anyway, so I just thought this would be um Can we talk about worth- the executive directors of these organizations <sighs> for a second? Because I feel like there is a point to be made here. The executive directors of certain organizations have a distinct have a tendency to kowtow to exactly these interests and water down their own fucking message and make decisions along those lines. And and I know that people are going to say, but they're funded by. And my thing is, um, you don't know if you're going to lose funding if you say what's right. Like, have you tested it before? Like, this is my thing is that we get into this time once we tie these 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 movements to corporate issues and values and government. Once that becomes sort of, you know, a focus, then you then these organizations have a tendency to self um Self police, police, mm-hmm. and they water down their own messages. Mm-hmm. And I'm tired of seeing that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, is my point. Well, and you start to to lose uh, people who would have otherwise believed yeah. in your cause. I mean, something that happened last year at Pride was that there was an alternate Pride that was organized by um, you know other community organizations and and done independent of Pride TM. Um, and I, you know the, I mean, yeah, absolutely. All right, so my rent and receipts this week is, um, I came across a tweet this morning um, from the Ottawa Bureau Chief of HuffPost um, in Canada, and basically um, what she said was that uh, on the HuffPost Canada Politics podcast, she had Maxime Bernier, um, who is now the the leader, the founder, both unclear, of the new People's Party of Canada, um, which is a conservative leaning, no, not leaning, it is a conservative political party in Canada. Um, Maxime Bernier left the formal, official conservative caucus party this summer and started his own party. Um, And basically she had him on to discuss his platform for the 2019 election and also to discuss uh, his stance on immigration. 
So uh, in Ottawa this morning, there is a demonstration um, planned to protest Canada's signing of the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration. Um, And Maxime Bernier is actually one of the speakers at this event. Is this the white supremacist event? Yeah. So there are white supremacists about to march in Ottawa. It's basically what you're saying. Yeah. Today. Yeah. Saturday, December 8th. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're already posting on Twitter that the riot police are, are there. Cool. Very cool. So we've got a leader, I guess. Like, I guess he's the leader since he's the de facto only member of the party. I'd say he's the leader. I think that's a fine moniker. Yeah, it's I'm okay to have sure. that moniker. I don't think you necessarily even need to have a party with elected leadership. The party can decide its own process, right? He's sure. the founder. Fine. The founder, leader, Maxime Bernier, um, he uh, famously has been very against immigration and migration in Canada and has espoused many sort of white supremacist views. Um, so... You know, this tweet comes out. Someone posts on the reporter's Instagram page that, oh, well, you know, uh, he's a white supremacist. And she says, oh, well, I've known him for 10 years. And I don't think he's a white supremacist. That's not the fucking point. Um, and I, none of us have listened to these podcasts, so we don't know I what. Didn't, I didn't know she was on a podcast. It's the Huffington Post. Every news organization has a podcast. Now. Yeah, that's true. Um, we haven't listened to the podcast. I don't think we're going to because, I mean, we didn't. Erica didn't know that it existed, first of all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm pretty podcasty. Second of all, <laughs> none of us care what Maxime Bernier has to say because his views are abhorrent. But the fact that, like, hiding behind this idea that she, the reporter, knows him personally um, and therefore you don't believe he's a white supremacist is a bad premise to allow someone a platform to espouse their views that mm-hmm. many people think are hateful. Mm-hmm. And I think that if, like, given that, you know, the whole situation of him leaving the Conservative Party is newsworthy and is interesting and hasn't happened before in Canada, just to sit not just as an independent, but as like someone else with a different party, their own party is absolutely newsworthy. And I think that part needs to be explored, but I don't necessarily think that because you've known them for 10 years means that you can just kind of give them a free pass to say whatever they want unchecked. Also like you, your social (laughs) relationship or awareness of someone over a 10 year period, is not the definer of whether or not they hold white supremacist views. Yeah. They can, you can be nice to whoever. In fact, that's the way Canadian racism usually works (laughs) is that I have a black friend. It's, it's, I have a brown friend. Yeah. And it's, it's, I'm so polite. So-and-so is nice to me. Yeah, exactly. And that is, that's dumb as fuck, to be honest. It's the most rudimentary understanding of, of like human relationships ever. And especially power. I mean, you, so, you know, Althea Raj, who is like writing this is the, only woman of color who is operating on the hill as a journalist the only person with with that level of access she's been um you know a figure in ottawa media for a really long time in federal uh federal politics Mm -hmm. 
there has to be more than I know this person. Yeah. To actually qualify what you do as journalism, first of all. Sorry, but that's arrogant as fuck. It's, 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 it is arrogant. It's arrogant and elitist, and it just reinforces this idea that, uh, you know, media and politicians are one in the same, that they have mm-hmm. tied interests. And I, and I do believe that's true. And, and I, you know what, frankly, thank you for the nakedness of your response for underscoring, um, you know, how interconnected this shit all is. But I mean, which is a much more particularly <laughs> Canadian thing than American. Thing. Oh, I think it's true everywhere. Uh, you know, it's the, what, I, I think it's true absolutely everywhere. I'm, no, I know, but it's. I think it's given like what I've experienced on right. both in both Canada and America. I think it's much more the the Canada the the political sphere and the report like the journalism in Canada. Like those relationships are much more different together than they are in America. Sure, sure, but That's, in terms of a power structure, I mean, yeah. well, we're marking no. the anniversary of Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent. So, I mean, way to validate that thesis. But like the the whole, I mean, absolutely um the the there are smaller circles here and they are like rife for this kind of abuse of of power and, and privilege and it's like, you know, Folks like Maxime Bernier cannot go un- unchecked. Like you can have him on a podcast to talk about the novelty of what he's doing, but you have to ask him the hard questions. Otherwise, the whole process is just handing him a platform. The thing that makes it news is that you grill him and hold him accountable for views that he has. Well, you are responsible for the context. Ab- uh, absolutely. You, you like the context for un- with which you frame the interview or the appearance is everything. Mm-hmm. Context is everything. Mm-hmm. And so what I find is that instead of providing context and um, an argument, what happens is all it becomes is earned media for these, for these, for, for people who really shouldn't have earned media. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm just wondering Can if you explain the, what the concept of earned media is. Like media that you did not purchase, but you have earned through either appearing on other platforms or um, it's basically exposure without paying for it. So if you think about earned media in terms of the 2016 Donald Trump election, part of and this is why I always say like Donald Trump is a media and marketing genius is because he knew how to get all that earned media from saying the shit he mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. That's the thing is that a lot of these like like far right people know how that not towing the line gets them a lot more earned media mm-hmm. and exposure than than actually um, behaving in that sort of corp, um, I, I say corporate a polite, lot, polite, polite, traditional, traditional, traditional ways. So um, to get the media riled up means that they're going to cover you more. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what the far right knows. That's what they've done for the past two or like maybe three or four years and have gamed the system that mm-hmm. way, the new system. Mm-hmm. And so we see more of their views. And then you have these idiots who don't seem to know that that's what they're doing, or at least don't seem to understand the implications of a whole bunch of earned media. And they're like, well, let's put them on this platform because I knew them in 1994 and they were fine. And, and, and I don't believe what they're saying. I think it's a really nice guy. Like fuck your, um, like advice, like, 
opinion of who he is. That's not your job. That's not your role in this particular case. If you want to invite him over for dinner, fine. <laughs> I give a fuck. No, I'll find it newsworthy and maybe tweetable. Mm. But but like otherwise, if you and him are best friends off the grid, fine. But then I have to ask the question, are you really the right person to conduct this interview? Well, yeah. I think what's really missing from from all the reporting in general about right wing organizations and this issue of white supremacy is like a really looking at what these organizations are, the power that they have and who they're influencing and who they have the ear of. And like this is a huge issue. So if you are a reporter covering this, your question should be who else is fucking at this rally? What what? Have they met with Maxime Bernier? To what extent have they met with him? You know, what views do they share? And and how aligned is he with the views of organizations that more or less are operating from a perspective of white supremacy? And see, so here are some of the organizations that are also at this rally today because I think it's like important for people to know this. So Citizen Geo or Go uh, Canada creates the right wing petitions. They call the UN migrant pack uh, as something that's pushed by Soros. It's global, global, globalist elites to gain global control. So classic anti-Semitic tropes in that. I one. was just about to say globalist elites equals Jews. Yeah, and yeah. Soros and and, all and that. Soros. By the way, which is something that Facebook also. Um, that conspiracy theory is something that Facebook also personally invested in. Well, for sure. And then like, we, we know this, you can't like play. Dust. It's, it's there. Like <laughs> I read know? about it. Yeah. Like I, so, I, I think I even have the tab still open on my phone. Canadian <laughs> coalition for responsible government. These are conspiracy theorists who also hold anti Soros events. Say the UN compact is an evil document and a plan to move massive amounts of migrants. And they share content with white, from white supremacist Faith Goldie and Stefan uh, Malno. Um, so Canadian it's more of the Jewish conspiracy. Well, there's more. So okay. Canadian Coalition of Concerned Citizens. Also, anti-Semitism is is also a form of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Canadian yes, Coalition of Concerned Citizens. This group is calling for the death penalty for the traitor Justin Trudeau. Shares whites genocide in South Africa memes, saying uh, coming to Canada soon. Um, and says globalists are pedophiles and shares white of white nationalist content from the states. Act exclamation mark for Canada is an anti-Islam group with apparent ties to white supremacist Richard Spencer and shares white genocide in South, Af South Africa conspiracy theories with the direct implication that if whites become minorities in Canada, they will be murdered, which is just the most blatantly racist thing you can say. And, you know, uh, and there's Maxim Bernier sharing the stage with Tom Quiggin, the author of Submission, The Danger of Pol Political Islam to Canada, who last year claimed that the Quebec mosque was a target was targeted because it was giving money to terrorists. So this this is from a, a Facebook thread of a friend of mine, uh, Michael Becret, uh, who is a Ph.D. student in sociology and political econ economy at Carleton. He studies uh, South Africa. Um, oh, that's exactly what I was thinking yeah, when you were reading that. He's yeah. really brilliant, but like this, and and I'm grateful that he 
does this type of research, but like uh, maybe Althea Raj and other people who have a duty to do this type of reporting should be adding this context and putting to Maxim Bernier what views from these organizations he shares and what spaces does he share with them and why. That's Those are right. really important questions. I have yet to hear these questions posed to to the far right white supremacists people, that they put on like stage. This white saying white supremacy is like an overreaction, an overstatement that that people are using it embellish it's an embellishment of of the online you know, millennial to 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 bandy that term around when, in fact, it's a term that these organizations use to self-describe. And now, for some reason, have been given the permit to stand on fucking Parliament Hill to do this kind of rally. Um, and you have someone who is a sitting par- forget his party. He's a sitting parliamentarian now headlining at this kind of talk. Where's and, the scrutiny? So so on and on a security on a security f- like framework here, how is it that a group that has called for the death of the sitting prime minister gets a fucking permit to stand yeah. on Parliament Hill? That is white. That is so fucking white. I can't. The shit that white people get away with, it's beyond me because there's no way, there's no way indigenous person says motherfucker in parliament or or fuck and all of a sudden the pearl clutching starts but this is okay like get the fuck out of here i'm just angry now i'm angry sorry yeah i got really worked up doing that too it's i just feel sad i feel counter (laughs) the counter protest that's happening right now in solidarity with uh you know, newcomers, migrants i'm glad you muslim brothers and sisters jewish canadians who are I'm sure really hurting to see this on full fucking display. Exactly. So, um, like, shout out to every person of color out there who uh, has to endure this bullshit. I mean, this is this is this this. How the fuck did they get a permit? Like nobody does security checks for Parliament Hill. The fuck? Well, I mean, one person would have to get that permit. Not necessarily the group. So like a different but, group. But you're telling me that they don't look at the group? They don't look at the groups. Well, the truth is like no one is looking. No one treats hate. Like they love policing protesters when it is. You're right. Indigenous activists who are when you know, it's protesting the in front of trans, yeah. trans Canada, whatever. It, it, they love, you know, uh, policing black activists. The Black Lives Matter activists from the from T.O. Pride were certainly uh, policed and, and, and have been. Uh, are I'm sure are on watch lists and that's part of what um, you know the Harper legislation around policing and sharing of information did it made activists especially vulnerable and yet right-wing activists get to go around with complete you know uh, you know with, with no oversight no control because hate crimes are not taken seriously hate speech is not taken seriously yeah and there is yeah. and i'm not you know i'm we're again clearly we're not for more policing but you can see the hypocrisy here about who gets policed and why and what things we consider priorities so an activist talking about you know uh, a fucking pipeline you know is jailed but these fuckers mm-hmm. posting on Facebook, you know, threats to the prime minister, nothing happens to them. That is white. That is how great it is to be white. That's the fucking point. 
Okay. So, um, my rent and receipts this week has to do with woke men who still want housewives. So, um, Jessica Valenti, who is, uh, I guess she's um, a prominent author. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Has a medium page. And uh, she uh, wrote about a new study that was um, published in the New York Times. It showed that while we should be mostly optimistic about how Americans' attitude on gender are progressing, there is broad support for equality between men and women, whatever that means. Uh, There is still a major gap in how people reconcile their political beliefs with their private lives. So there was a study done based on national data from 1977 to 2016 that helps explain why the path to equality seems to have stalled despite significant increases in women's education and professional opportunities during that period. Two-thirds of um, Americans and three-quarters of millennials say they believe that men and women should be equal in both the public sphere of work and the private sphere at home. However, the devil's in the details as it usually is. Mm -hmm. The study also revealed that roughly a quarter of people's views about gender equality are more complicated and differ regarding work and home. Most of them say that while women should have the same opportunities as men to work or participate in politics, they should do more of the homemaking and child rearing because they're good at it. So there seems to be a, a a a problem in the in the in the matrix, I suppose. And um, sorry, you can believe men and women have truly different natural tendencies and skills. That women are better nurturers and caretakers, and still believe women should have equal rights in the labor force," said Barbara Reisman, a sociology professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago and author of the paper. So um, basically, Americans have grown more egalitarian at work and leave home uh, to um, as, as still believe that home is women's work. Plenty ascribed to retrograde ideas about the biological differences between the sexes. Um, While women tend to think that the differences between men and women are based on social expectations, men are more likely to believe in the quote unquote natural differences. And so what Jessica Valenti says is that, let's be clear, sexist beliefs about innate ability, even when they come from otherwise progressive men, are a cop-out masquerading as an ideological position. They're a convenient excuse made for men who want to seem woke while maintaining personal power in their relationships. And since it's no longer socially acceptable to believe that women are somehow less than, especially not during a time when feminism is wielding so much cultural power, arguing that women are just naturally better at caretaking or domestic work has become a clever little way to shirk living up, 
to to shirk living up to progressive values while claiming you're simply complimenting women on their stellar ironing skills. And I thought that was brilliantly put. This is exactly why millennial women are so single. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Like and it and it and it goes further into like when we think of like all of those um, mass murders that are perpetuated against women, they're always by millennial men or very often by millennial men or men under thirty, sorry, under forty, um, and they're the ones who are just like, oh well, I deserve a woman, I deserve this. Women should mm. be doing this for me to me, and millennial women just like go fuck yourself i'd rather just not have anything to do with you and then they get mad and then they wonder why they're single they wonder why women don't like them but you know it's just a it's a self-perpetuating cycle like yeah um millennial men are a bit fucked up uh is <laughs> <laughs> basically what you're saying i think i think that the the I think what we're realizing is this idea of female prog- or, or or of progression as a woman didn't seem to kind of it kind of missed like the male side. Like, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. That's my point. Well, what, I mean, when that happens, we overemphasize uh, women being uh, able to do everything and play every role. But we don't do we don't have the same onus placed on men. And so men get a pass. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Like, especially when you have a man who has kids and he says, oh, I have to go babysit my kids. <laughs> Bitch, those are your kids. You're not <laughs> babysitting. You're looking after your kids to the afternoon while your wife does something else that she yeah. likes to do. And babysitting Im- like implies like paid work. <laughs> so why are you couching everything that you do in paid work? But your wife is just supposed to do it? The fuck? Yeah, no. Like, I, I don't... No. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, that's um, men for you because, well, they're men, so. <laughs> well, like, I, guess, <laughs> I, mean, I guess that about does it. I don't, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> like, like, your wokeness is whack. It's basically yeah. it. So, Ooh, uh... I think I just got a title. Nice. Uh, so uh, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, Facebook slash Bad and Beat Podcast. Email us Bad and Pod at gmail dot com. Bye. 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 Bye.